Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hi there, and welcome to Grief is My Superpower. I'm Mark Lemon, award-winning children's author, bereavement ambassador and your host for this podcast each week i'll be interviewing incredible people that get open and honest about their own experience with grief when i was 12 years old my dad was murdered and my life changed forever i try to explore with my guests if it's possible to live a happy and fulfilled life after the death of a loved one you can find me as mark lemon official on instagram and at the lemon drop books website for this episode, I speak with palliative care physician and author, Dr. Catherine Mannix. Catherine speaks with me about how we can better prepare ourselves when facing the end of life. You can find Catherine on Instagram and Twitter as Dr. Catherine Mannix. Please don't forget to subscribe and leave a comment wherever you're listening to this podcast. By doing this, it will help us to reach more people in need of support at a tough time. This podcast is in support of children's bereavement charity, Winston's Witch. Okay, so as mentioned in my introduction, my guest today is someone that I've really wanted to get onto the new series, and I'm so pleased that she has agreed to come on to speak with me today, and it's Catherine Mannix. How are you? Hi, Mark. I'm fine. How are you? Yeah, I'm not too bad, thanks. And as we were just talking off mic, if you hear a slurp, it's Catherine drinking her tea. <laughs> very, very important part of the process. It's an important part of the process. Um, but yeah, we're, in all seriousness, we're, we're in our respective homes. And as is the case with every interview at the moment, due to you know the way of the world, um, we are having to record this remotely. Um, but um, yeah, I'm really appreciative of you coming on today and speaking with me. Um, but for the listeners, I was wondering whether you could maybe just give a, a brief introduction as to who you are, please. Okay, uh, I have worked for many years in palliative care as a doctor, uh, 30 years in all. And I took early retirement a few years ago now to try and do something about the situation I kept coming across at work, which is people who had family, friends, or who themselves were reaching the end of their lives and whose beliefs about what was going to happen were so terrifying that they were ruining that last part of their living. 
And I just thought, you know, somebody has to do something about this. People need to understand about the process of dying. And yes, it's sad. Those farewells are sad. But it, it isn't like on the telly. It isn't like on Hollywood. It's much more gentle than that. And perhaps people could know more and then be less afraid. So I'm campaigning for better public understanding of dying. And I've done a few things now around that campaign. The work that you've been doing is incredible. And and it spreads across quite a few years. Um, I know you, you touched on it briefly just now, but I was wondering whether you could just give the listeners a bit of background about your own experience with grief. And I, <laughs> I know in terms of the field that you work in, it, it's quite extensive. It's, it's an interesting thing, really, that I wasn't personally closely bereaved until quite late on in life. And in fact, for most people, that is the case. Most people will get into their 40s, 50s or 60s before somebody who's really close to them in their life has a terminal illness or, or dies. Um, and so that's part of the reason we don't know what to expect because we haven't seen it in our childhoods like we would have done 100 years ago. Um, so my early experiences when I was a young mum were of my grandparents dying and the grief of that I think is tempered by a kind of sense of timeliness you know, my grandmother was nearly 98 when she died um, so there's there's that sad fondness that you know I still go to buy birthday presents and Christmas presents for them and, and this is you know nearly nearly 30 years ago in the case of one of them. So that that kind of gap never seals over. Um, and then as I've become older, people in my generation who I'm very fond of have died. Um, one of my very dearest friends, um, a, a great family friend who lived overseas, so we didn't see each other very often. Um, but the thing that was important for both of those people as they were in their terminal illness was that we talked about it. We talked to each other. Um, the one who was in, uh, in, in England was somebody that I had the, the honour really to help to look after at the very end of her life. Um, and those things, that ability to talk about it and say the goodbyes, which is awful, let me not pretend that it's beautiful there's something very precious about it but it's still incredibly sad but the ability to say those goodbyes has been an incredible comfort in sort of alongside the the, the yearning and the emptiness and the you know oh that's a really great thing and you take a photograph and you reach for your phone to send the photograph and then you remember that they're dead and they've been dead for years now and I still do that so still, I'm very fortunate. I think I'm myself very fortunate. My parents are alive. My siblings are alive. Our children are well and thriving. And there are people who've had bereavements far more terrible than anything I've experienced. But my own experience, I think, has translated into walking alongside dying people and their families in a more informed way in the later part of my working life. I think that kind of leads me perfectly onto my next question, really, is, you know, you've been working in the palliative care since, what, 1986, I believe. Um, how have you seen the conversation surrounding death change to where we are today? The actual thing was, Mark, that I hadn't. 
Uh, and, you know, in 1986, when I first went to work in a hospice, because I'd been training to be uh, a cancer doctor, that was my career dream. And you know how it is, you go to medical school and then when you qualify, you do jobs in lots of different specialties while you do even more exams to qualify you to go to the next grade. And it's it's never ending. And eventually I, I got to the place where I was working in the regional cancer centre, which was, you know, the beginning of the next career plan, if you like. And what I discovered was that actually finding the cure for cancer wasn't as exciting as I had hoped it was going to be. Seeing the patients was lovely. It was the best part of every day. But there was an awful lot of mulling through results and drawing graphs and um, not patient focused, not people focused stuff. And at the same time, the people who were in to have treatment but weren't going to get cured were trying to make the best of the time that was left. And that was just so fascinating for me that I spent a lot of extra time trying to fiddle on to make that leg pain comfortable enough that you could get home and walk from your chair to the toilet, for example, or or to try and work out how to damp down the breathlessness that you were experiencing so that you could manage the stairs and still sleep in your own bed upstairs with your spouse instead of having to sleep in a hospital bed downstairs. So those sorts of things suddenly made sense and seemed very, very interesting to me. So just at the point where I'm thinking, actually, these people living with incurable illness, I'm much more drawn to what they need and, and making a difference to their lives than I am to these people who are going to be cured. Uh, around about the same time, a hospice was built about three blocks away from where I live, and they advertised for staff. So I just wrote to them and said, you know, I'm a junior doctor. I've passed the necessary exams to go on to train to be a consultant doctor, but I haven't done that training yet. And, you know, I know the system around here, could you use me? And they they did give me a job. And that was really lovely because I was trained by the first consultant that they appointed there, who was absolutely wise and enthusiastic and knowledgeable. And I was trained alongside the nursing team who'd come from all sorts of different places to work in this hospice. And we all we all learned together as a team. And what we were seeing was people coming in very afraid and we would be able to sort out the symptoms and enable them to feel, you know, less frightened that they were going to die in a paroxysm of breathlessness or their pain was going to suddenly overwhelm them and they would die screaming in front of their families. These were the sort of ideas that people had in their heads because that's what happens on soap operas and that's what happens in the cinema. And gradually be able to learn how you can describe the process of, of dying, which is something I think we we'll probably come on to in, in, in a minute, in a way that enables people to think, well, okay, if that's what's going to happen, uh, I'm still not keen, but actually that doesn't sound terrible. I can do that and it's not going to terrify the people around me. So now I don't have to live in terror. I understand this is a stepwise process and it's not going to suddenly leap at me out of the blue. Um, and that changes the way people can live. So 1986, and I'm learning to have these conversations. And one of the things we're thinking, working in hospices, is that in 20 years' time, we will have changed the public conversation. Uh, we will have trained 
general practitioners and hospital doctors everywhere to have these skills for symptom management and these tender conversations about the reality of what happens as people die. And we will have educated ourselves out of a job. You know, we won't need hospices anymore. We won't need uh, people who do this job because it will have been incorporated into the mainstream. And, you know, here we are 35 years later, and we know that isn't what happened. And that's two, two reasons, I think. One is that when I joined it, it was called working in a hospice. But later on that year and the next year, the Association for Palliative Medicine was formed and palliative medicine became a recognised specialty in which you could train. And the specialties always have people who are doing research. And so our understanding of symptom management got much more evidence-based. We got better treatments, we refined them. So the body of knowledge around palliative care got bigger and bigger and bigger. And would be too much to add to everything that a GP needs to know, everything that a breast cancer surgeon needs to know. You know, it's it's just too much extra. So we can teach people how to manage pain that's reasonably easy to manage, how to manage breathlessness that's reasonably easy to manage. But if it gets difficult, that's why you have specialists in all of the other things, isn't it? Why you have specialist chest doctors and heart doctors. Well, we're the specialist symptom doctors. And it's and so we're going to sit alongside all of the other services. But the other thing that hasn't happened is that change in public understanding. So opera deaths are still wrong. Cinema deaths are still wrong. Um, what we read in the newspapers is about really unusual, difficult, awful situations that do sometimes happen at the end of people's lives. But in the same way that, you know, if you only if you only knew about air travel from what you read in the newspapers, you would never get on a plane because they only report the disasters. And and almost every journey is not a disaster. In the same way newspapers only report the disastrous dying and we mustn't pretend it doesn't happen and we really have to think about every time it does go wrong just like every time there's a plane crash you think about what went wrong and how can we learn from it and how can we stop this mistake from happening again Uh, in the same way most dying is not like what we read about or hear about in the media so this so the conversation hadn't changed since 1986 and we're in it happened again that a family came in uh, around a very elderly parent who'd collapsed, who'd had, um, you know, cardiopulmonary resuscitation, chest compressions and all the rest of it in the ambulance on the way there. And when I said to the family, what did your dad say he would want if he was ever so sick that he might die? They just looked stunned. They looked like I was, you know, speaking a foreign language to them. And the thing is, this man was known to have several different things that were very seriously wrong with him, including a very dodgy heart. And he was in his late 90s. So his sons, who couldn't bear to think about their dad dying, they were in their 60s and 70s. And they hadn't seen anybody die, and they couldn't bear to have the conversation with their dad. And then one of them said, actually, dad tried to talk to me about this, you know. And I said, dad, don't be maudlin. And I've heard that so many times. And then his brother said, oh, it wasn't just you. 
So now confessions all start to come out. His brother said, you know, dad asked me if I'd do one of those attorney documents um, so that I could help mum if decisions needed to be made. And I just said, yeah, dad, don't be miserable. You're going to live forever. And now here they were with a semi-conscious dad who was in the act of dying, not able to tell him they loved him, not able to say goodbye because he's unconscious and they are distraught. And something inside me just snapped. I just thought, you know, we cannot keep doing this one family at a time. We've got to do something publicly, nationally, that says, guys, we've got to talk about this because not talking about it isn't going to stop it from happening. And talking about it isn't going to make it happen. But we could all be so much better prepared and not like these poor men now weeping beside their unconscious dad and it's too late to say the things that really matter. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Yeah, I completely agree. It, it, it sort of ties into everything that I'm trying to do with, you know, with talking about it with children and, and introducing it into schools. And, you know, more often than not, you, you might have, like you've just said, you might have that parent who is a bit afraid to know how to approach it. And then, you know, I, I'm extremely fortunate to get so many touching messages from parents who have just lost their husband, their wife, and now they're having to support their children. And, um, you know, and I had one yesterday and it was heartbreaking, but we kind of, we don't want to get to that point, do we? You know, of, of when it does happen, that's when we have to deal with it, you know? And, and so, yeah, there's that kind of that, you know, like you just said, when someone's receiving the palliative care, when someone's sort of nearing the end of life, you know, how can we open up the, the conversation? Yeah, absolutely right. And, you know, a lot of the concern that I see in people who are approaching the end of their lives mirrors the sorts of conversations that you're having. It's a little bit of what's going to happen to me. How will this be? What will it be like? But it's mainly what's my family going to see? Is it going to terrify them? If my children or my grandchildren are in the room, am I going to leave them with a memory that will just horrify them forever? And so to be able to describe to somebody what the process of ordinary dying is, is such a consolation. And maybe it's worth thinking about that a bit now, should we? Shall I yeah, explain? So, <laughs> so let's just, it, it, often it comes up as a, as a conversation because the person talks about the things that worry them the most. And I ask most people, what's their best hope and what's their worst dread? Because what we want to try and do is make whatever's going to happen from here on as much like their best hope as it can be and the least like their worst dread that it can be. So let's just get it out there. Let's just talk about it now. And so best hopes are about living as long as possible for some people, but living as well as possible for almost everybody. 
family time, time with the people who matter to me, getting things finished off, um, saying important things. And the important things messages are really interesting because they're so consistent. People want to say thank you to people who have meant a lot to them during their lives. People want to sort out broken relationships and they might want to decide that it's so broken that they're going to decide now they're not even going to try. But at least that gives them peace of mind instead of wondering whether one day it might all come right again. But usually it's about repairing it and that's partly about saying I'm sorry to some people and partly it's about saying I forgive you to some people. And those are really important messages. But the most consistent message is telling people we love them. And somehow, you know how one of the difficulties that you and I both come across is how difficult it is for people to use their D words and actually say, you know, dying or death or dead. We as a nation also have a problem with the L word and being able to say to somebody, I love you, when our relationship is not a spousal relationship, it's not a parent-child relationship, but you've been my best colleague in this post office sorting office for 25 years and I love working alongside you and you've made the bad days bearable. And actually, do you know, I really love you, mate. It's a really important thing to be able to say. It's 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 so important, isn't it? It's because... I think there's that stigma around that word as well because it's you know it doesn't have it doesn't have to be your girlfriend, your boyfriend, your partner, your granddad, your grandma, your whoever. You know, it can be like you said that person you work alongside with and you have done for a very long time and it's okay, you know. It's it's what life is about just telling, expressing your your love for that person. Yeah. You're absolutely right. And all all our precious relationships are based on love. The, the difficulty we've got, I guess, is we've only got that one word and there are so many different types of love. There are other languages that have different words to use for it and we've only got that one. But people do want to be able to say that. And when I think back to the deaths of the people who are precious to me, the fact that we were able to tell each other that we loved each other has been an enormous consolation in bereavement so it's so so important but it's also an enormous consolation to the dying person so when they try to have that conversation with us the thing that we can do most that helps is to shut up and let them say it instead of going oh no 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 you know it was okay it was all right it was no bother being a being your cut just shut up and listen and let them say it so we're working on this kind of best hope worst dread and very often their worst dread is something awful. And so what's really lovely then is to be able to say, do you know what? I've been around an awful lot of people at the very end of their lives because of the nature of the work I do. And it sounds like what you're expecting is just like nothing like what I'm expecting. Way worse than what I'm expecting. Would it help you if I just explained to you what I think is most likely to happen? And people are kind of intrigued, but kind of terrified, and they're not quite sure. So, so how about if I start explaining, and if you tell me to stop at any point, I, I promise I will stop. There and then I will stop. So the, the first thing that people notice, and it doesn't matter what the illness is that we're dying from, the very end of life, it's all very similar. The first thing we notice is people run out of energy. 
And you might already be noticing that, are you? And they go, yeah. Okay. And one of the things you'll find when you're running out of energy is you need to sleep more. And some people really relish that sleeping and it recharges their batteries. And other people think, oh, I have to be strong. I must resist the sleep. And so they're knackered all the time. So sleep is your friend. Sleep recharges your batteries and it's completely safe. Because if you're tired enough to feel that you need a snooze, you're well enough to wake up again. Because some people have been told that they won't be awake at the moment that they die, which is technically true, and we're going to talk about that in a minute, but they've misinterpreted that to mean they'll be asleep when they die, so now they're terrified to go to sleep. So sleep is safe. Sleep is important. Sleep is as important or maybe even more important than eating and drinking at this stage in terms of what it does for your energy levels. So, you know, if you've got an important thing that's going to happen, a phone call you want to make, you're doing a Zoom call to your grandkids, whatever it is, have your sleep first and your energy levels will be recharged a bit, ready to do that thing. And as time goes by, what we find is people tend to spend more time asleep and less time awake. But when they're awake, as long as their illness isn't interfering with their mind or their brain, then they're their normal selves and they can enjoy being awake and enjoy the people who are around them and the things they've still got the energy to do. So I'll check then. Are you okay? Is that kind of what you're expecting? No, of course it isn't what most people were expecting. Okay. So is it all right if I carry on talking about this? Yeah, okay. It's all right so far. Well, the next thing that we find happens to people is that they are in fact awake very little and asleep almost all of the time. And something really interesting happens at this stage, which is during those periods of being asleep, we find maybe it's medicine time or maybe there's a visitor or phone call. We want to wake them up and we can't wake them up. And when they wake up naturally later on, they tell us they've had a lovely sleep. So they didn't notice the change. But we know that for a period of time, they were not just asleep, they were actually unconscious. They'd gone into a coma for a period of time and then they'd woken up again. And this is the next phase now of dipping between being awake and being asleep and being very deeply asleep and being unconscious and then resurfacing again. And it comes in waves. And that might mean that, you know, you might be taking tablets or medicines that keep some of the symptoms of your illness away. And we don't want you to miss those medication points because you were too deeply asleep or temporarily unconscious. So now we have to find a different way for you to have those medicines because we don't want you to wake up from the end of that. And that's, you know, really deep sleep. And it's two hours past your medicine time. And when you wake up, your pain has come back or you're, you're breathless or, or whatever. So this is the time where in France, you would switch to suppositories because that's their preferred route. And in Britain, because we don't like talking about bottoms, uh, we start to use injections in those little syringe pumps. And that's just giving you the same amount of drug that you've always needed. We know by now this person well enough to know what's the amount that stops their pain coming back. So we just, those little pumps just dribble it in a little bit continuously over 24 hours instead of six dollops every four hours or two massive dollops every 12 hours. It's very gently going in. So now this person is unconscious almost all of the time, briefly wakening until in the end, they just don't waken at all. What's starting to happen is the body is just switching all the lights off and 
blood pressure is getting lower, there's less blood getting around all the other organs, so the kidneys slow down, the liver slows down, the heart isn't pumping quite as hard, and all the different functions of the brain are turning themselves off until the only bit that's still working reliably is the bit that works our breathing. And now that breathing becomes just a reflex automatic cycle. And it's very distinct and it's something that we only see in unconscious people. So it moves from deep breathing to shallow breathing and then back to deep breathing and back to shallow breathing. And it also moves between fast breathing and slow breathing and slower breathing and gaps and then back to fast breathing and then getting slower and then gaps. And so if family don't know about that breathing pattern, they might, for example, see somebody who's at the deep breaths stage. This person's so unconscious, they can't feel their throat. So they're not managing their airway the way you or I would. If there was a little bit of saliva at the back of our throat, we would cough or swallow and clear it. It'll just lie there in that person's throat. They're not bothered by it. But actually, their breath will bubble through it and it makes a clicking noise. People call that the death rattle and they say it as though it's something terrible. But actually, it's a sign that the person is deeply, deeply unconscious. They don't even feel, you know, that most sensitive part of their body. The back of your throat is so sensitive to protect us and stop us from, you know, tea going down the wrong way and all the rest of it. It's really sensitive. And now the brain just isn't talking to that bit of the throat anymore. It's completely unaware. So that death rattle noise tells me this person is deeply, deeply unconscious. They're beyond feeling distress. So why are we not explaining that to families so they're not frightened by it? And at other phases in the breathing, it can be quite quick but shallow and it sounds a little bit like panting. And, you know, families will come and say, will you come and look at my mum? I think she's short of breath. And when you get there, it's this reflex breathing that says your mum is actually deeply, deeply unconscious. She doesn't know she's breathing like this. She isn't struggling for breath. This is part of that reflex breathing cycle. So explaining it to people is really important. Because we can't feel our throat, sometimes our vocal cords are a little bit closed over. So we'll breathe out and make a noise. like mm. And people think, are they sighing? Are they groaning? Are they uncomfortable? Are they trying to speak? No, they're just deeply, deeply unconscious. And so there's these cycles of breathing. And then during one of the cycles, it will get more gentle, longer pauses. And then there'll be an out-breath that just doesn't have another in-breath after it. It's as unexciting as that. And all of us in palliative care have gone into a room, you know, when you're working in a hospice particularly, you'll find a family sitting around the bed and the person isn't breathing and they haven't noticed yet because it's been so gentle. So it's really, really not like on the telly. So I get to that point in explaining and say, so you know that this this last breath and there's no sudden rush of pain or panic or terror at the end. So if your family are around you, that's all they will see. How does that sound to you? And the first thing to notice is they've let me tell them to the very last breath and nobody's ever stopped me. Even though I've promised at the beginning that if it's too scary, I would stop. Nobody's ever stopped me. 
because actually it's not what they were expecting. And it's so much more predictable and gentle than they were expecting. And then the next thing almost everybody says is, could you tell my family that, please? Because I don't think that's what they're expecting. That's so much better than we're expecting. Can, can you tell them so they will feel better? And what I usually say is, well, why don't we tell them together? Because actually it really helps this person to hear it again or to tell it so I can steer and check in case they've misunderstood any bits of it. And I will also say, look, don't just take my word for it. You've got, maybe you've got a palliative care nurse specialist who visits you at home or the cancer nurse specialist who you know really well at the hospital. Check out my story with them because you need to know that this is the truth. And actually, this might be the first time this person's met me, but they know other people that they really, really trust. And what what I'm doing is just describing the process of dying. So you were talking before about families getting in touch with you. Because I described this process in my book, um, in fact, what I described was the first time I heard this hospice doctor describing it to a patient. And I was really shocked. How can you possibly describe dying? And he did. And she was, as people always are, transformed by hearing it from her terror to a state of being so much more peaceful. Um, now that, I, I mean, have... peaceful is what I just felt, honestly, while you were telling me that. Um, I'd never heard it that way before. And also, you know, is, is this not a practice that is, you know, used in... in hospices across the UK or, or is it you know something that you have kind of adapted in terms of talking to the family members and well I I acquired it from my first boss so it's, it's entirely stolen from him and um, what he was trying to do was paraphrase something Elizabeth Kubler-Ross said when she was doing her research with dying people looking at the kind of emotional journey that they went on which has become mistranslated in the public imagination as five stages of grief. She actually was talking about the emotional states that she observed in people who were getting ready for their own dying. She wasn't talking to bereaved people. And she didn't think it was a sequence necessarily. It's just that these are the sorts of emotional experiences people have. But she also noticed as she got to know these people that towards the end of their lives, what happened wasn't so much a sudden presence of death, which was the thing that they feared, but a gradual absence of life. And so my boss was trying to explain what that gradual absence of life looked like. And so that was his beautiful script that he used. And I know lots and lots of people who use that now. They've learned it from him. We were you know, a group of trainees who then became consultants who trained our trainees. Um, lots of people who are used to watching people die, healthcare assistants particularly, because they're usually the people at the bedside, will, as, as, as we're talking about this, they will nod and they'll say, yes, that's exactly what we see every time. That is what it looks like. So the correspondence I've had from writing that in a book is from hundreds, I, I've lost count, it might be thousands of people now, some of them saying, that's exactly what I saw. And thank you um, because I thought we'd seen something unusually lovely. And I never tell people about how my beloved person died in case I make other people sad because it seems so peaceful to us. And I think we 
had an unusual experience, but now I know we had the normal experience. It's the fact that nobody talks about it that stops us knowing. But much more poignantly, hundreds of letters from people saying, I thought that my beloved person died in agony. I thought they were groaning. I thought they were drowning. I've been in psychotherapy for 10 years with PTSD since my mother died. Somebody wrote to me. And last night I read your description of dying. I recognized my mum. I realized she'd been peaceful. I slept through the night last time, last night for the first time in 10 years. And we, we've got to get this information out to people. And, and that's why I'm, I'm so grateful to you for letting me talk about it here for your listeners, because it's just so important. And what I really want is not just that people listen and think, oh yeah, that is what we saw when whoever it was died. But they then think, and I know these people who are waiting for their beloved person to die, and they will be as ignorant as I was. And I have this gift I can give them. I can explain to them this gentle sequence, or I can give them this track from the the podcast, or this, I've got a little BBC uh, ideas video. It's about four minutes long. So I, although it's taken me half an hour to say, it, I can say it in four minutes. Um, and you know, just we've got to share it. This this needs to be common public knowledge. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and six one since that matters. And what do I even say other than hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. I completely agree. And and like you say, it it, it kind of affects a, a bereaved person, but also before the loved one has died as well. You know, it's these these sort of um these realizations that this is how they died and you know, I don't, you know, I haven't got that sort of that imagery in my head or that kind of thought process of this is, oh, it was so traumatic or, you know, and like you say, the, the more we can get this out there, the better. And I, and I guess, you know, as these things do, it's leaded me nicely onto your book um, with the end in mind. Um, and obviously based on your years of experience, um, I was just wondering whether you wanted to tell the listeners briefly about your book and, you know, I guess, You've probably talked about it just now in terms of why you wanted to write it, but but whether you could talk us through the process and and how you found it. Yeah. So when I first stopped work to think about how to change the public understanding of dying, and I, I wasn't so silly to think that I was going to do it, but I wanted to kind of join up with other people who were trying to do it to see what, what we could do together. Um, so there's a coalition of end-of-life uh, organizations, you know, Marie Curie and Macmillan and a lot of the bereavement organizations, Winston's Wish, who I know you do a lot of fantastic work with, um, who belong to this coalition called Dying Matters. And they, ha- they have a website. So there's stuff about end of life care and stuff about bereavement care. It's a really, really useful resource. So I made contact with them. Um, and I wrote a couple of newspaper articles and I just was very lucky to get invited to talk uh, on a on a BBC Radio Four show called One to One about what what happens when we're dying. Um, and somebody who heard that broadcast was 
the wife of a literary agent. <laughs> so she told him, you need to listen to this. Um, and he got in touch with me and said, have you ever thought about writing a book? Now, it so happens that I I had kind of thought about writing a book, and yet I hadn't thought about writing a book. When I was training, we didn't have the sort of uh, psychology support that people who work in high-intensity areas of medicine regularly have now. So if you got home at the end of the day and your head was full of something, there was nowhere to put it. And I used to write it out. So I've got a collection of single sheets of A4 from back when I was a medical student. You've not been writing sp- this book for a while. Well, so, so, and not all Without sad realizing. things. Yeah, I hadn't, I never thought I would write them for publication. I was writing them for sanity at the time. And some of them are lovely things. You know, the first baby I delivered is, is in that folder and all sorts of nice things as well. Um, but it meant that when I wanted to try and remember individual illustrations of families who coped well or families who tripped over things that were difficult and how could that have been resolved or how did it get resolved? I didn't have to make it up. I I could go back to my own notes and find those things. And so I thought I could maybe have a go at writing a book when this guy phoned me, Um, but I knew I'd have to keep everything very, very confidential and anonymous. So what I did was read back through all of those notes and see the things that I'd seen again and then turn them into stories about people with different names and genders and nationalities and sometimes even make one person out of two or three people so you could illustrate things that actually happen without it being only to the person that it actually happened to. Not sure I said that in English, but you might know what I mean. So it's kind of a story version, but every event that happened is true. And what I wanted to do was try and go back to, remember I told you my my, my grandmother died when she was uh, nearly, it was in her late 90s. She was actually born in 1900. So she was the age of the year, every year, which was handy when you're trying to work out what birthday she was having. And um, she by the 1930s, was in her mid-30s and had had the sort of experience of 100 years ago. So she'd helped look after family members who'd been dying at home because there was no national health service and they weren't a wealthy family um, from being a teenager. And by the time she was in her mid-30s and you know Europe was in a state of disintegration and about to declare war, um, she had not only looked after her parents and siblings, but one of her children had died of an illness we routinely immunise children against now, and her husband had died of sepsis when his appendix ruptured. So she was left with four children and a war, and at the other end of that war, there was 1948 in the National Health Service, and technological medical advances, a lot of which come out of war, which is sad, but true. So over the second half of the 20th century, life expectancy absolutely changed and people who were so sick they might die got taken into hospital. So when she was approaching her 97th birthday and reflecting on the changes she'd seen, you know, men on the moon, one of the things that was concerning her was that when she died, her children, so my mum and her siblings, hadn't had a close bereavement because they were too little to remember their dad dying. Two of them weren't born when their brother died. 
and this was the next death. And they were in their 60s and 70s. So in a generation, really, we forgot about dying. Um, and the way she knew about it was by being there. So I thought, you know what, when, when I'm writing this book, I'm not going to write a book of, here's a doctor talking to you about dying in a very serious voice. Because, you know, that's, that's just dull, really, isn't it? I'm going to write a book of stories where we're going to sit together, you and I, it's pre-COVID, so we're on a sofa side by side, and we're going to look together at this situation. And I'm going to introduce you to this person so that you know them well enough to be bothered about what happens to them. And we're going to watch what happens together. And we're going to see what the difficulties were. We're going to see how they got resolved. We're going to talk about how the dying was and how the family understood or misunderstood it and what the impact was on them afterwards. We're going to talk about how most people who know that they're at the end of their life don't think of themselves as dying. When they wake up in the morning and have their breakfast, they are living and they've got today, and they're going to do stuff with today. And actually, it's we who label them dying, but they are getting on with living. And let's look at the extraordinary way in which people live when they know that time is very, very precious, because they don't sweat the small stuff. They do use their L words. They are able to say things that previously maybe it just wasn't possible to say. They are able to resolve those family disputes or decide that it's time to just put it behind them because it's not resolvable. And so they are interestingly different. They're still the same people. Not, they don't become saints, but they do become more sensitive and tuned into everything that's going on around them. And they're very appreciative and they, that's why they're really lovely to work with. And so when palliative care team goes on to a ward in the hospital, very often the nurses will say, why do you only see the nicest patients we look after? And the answer is because these patients have become the nicest patients you look after simply because they are aware of the preciousness of time. So the book is just stories. It's not medical. I don't think there's a single medical word in the whole book, I tried really hard to make sure there wasn't. And um, I, I get lots and lots of lovely feedback from people. Um, I've had a lot of feedback from public transport saying, I am crying on the tube. Um, I am weeping on a train. You could have warned me. So we should have had the book sponsored by Kleenex. But when we, t when we drill into that, it's, it's good tears. It's tears about how absolutely amazing human beings are and how they rise to really difficult things in, a, in an extraordinary way. And they are us. They are ordinary people living ordinary lives and dying ordinary deaths. And they are just the examples that we can know about and internalise in our hearts so we can be less afraid. Hmm. Sounds incredible. Um, and I was, while you were talking, I was thinking how since doing the podcast since writing my own children's book to do with grief. Um, my mindset has slowly but surely changed as well. And it has over the years, obviously, you know, my dad died when I was 12 years old. So I've had kind of this long, ext extensive grief career, but um, there is that element of really trying to enjoy today and just being appreciative. And like you say, when you're, at the end of life, 
the sort of the mindset changes, you know, and I think that's so powerful. And, and your book, which, you know, does sound incredible. I can, I can just picture people with yes, tears, but also a bit of a smile on their face because it's like a realization. Your brain needs support and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Yeah, and there's, there's been a lot of that in the feedback, and it's and that's been lovely. The other thing that's been lovely in the feedback is there are lots of conversations in the book. I've tried to recreate the way I've heard people talking, you know, my boss talking about what dying would be like or conversations I've had with people. Um, and I did that so that people reading it would say, oh, well, do you know what? I could talk to that nurse that I really like in the clinic like this. I could have a conversation like this with that nurse because he's lovely. Or yeah, I could talk to my GP about this. She's known me a long time and I could I could do that. So so I deliberately included conversations so people could think about there are there are ways into having these discussions. What I hadn't anticipated is how it's been picked up by healthcare professionals and carers. And they also are using it to say, yeah, oh, I could have conversations like that, but completely the other way around. So that's really lovely because it means that it's opened up in two ways. It's giving everybody uh, kind of the, the, the example that they can go and have that conversation amongst themselves in a family or with a, with a nurse or a professional they really trust. But it's also been a kind of teaching aid and there are several schools of nursing now and some paramedic schools that are using it as a textbook and you know I almost feel like I should apologize to those people because I was so determined I wasn't going to be writing a textbooky kind of book so it's lovely that this very non-textbooky book is is being used for that as well I just I love the idea that those wise people I've learned from who are in the book they're in the pockets of these staff around well around the world now because there's lots of translations helping them to help their patients and that that's just fantastic isn't it that's really lovely such a wonderful feeling you know yeah to know that you've continued the legacy of what you've been taught you know as well that's that's so lovely to think like you said they're they're in the pockets (laughs) yeah it's really lovely Um, I feel like I've stolen um phrases and helpful things to say from people all over the place who are so wise and and now I've just given them all away again. It's great. Mm. No, it's really lovely. Um, okay. I wanted to move on to a few questions from the children at Winston's Wish. And the first one is, how do you make yourself feel happy when you're feeling sad? I love to have a cup of tea. And I like to watch the milk going round into the tea and mixing in. And just really, really focus on that. And then I hold the cup and I feel how warm it is. And I sip the tea and I feel the warm tea going down my throat and down through my chest to my tummy. And it feels like a hug in a mug. And I really like that. And the other thing that I love to do is to look out of the window because I live in the countryside. And there's always birds in the hedge and in the tree 
and they don't know about being sad. They just are having their lovely day. And I just love to watch them and I try and give them names, but they move so quickly that you can't remember which one's which. And it just takes you away from all those sad thoughts because the birds are just having this fantastic game of tag in the hedge. In the frosty hedge, probably at the moment. Mm, Just at the minute, (laughs) yeah. Okay, the next one is, what three things are you most thankful for at the moment? Ooh, that's a good question, isn't it? So I'm very thankful that I have a very lovely family. So I have my husband and I have two grown-up children. And one of my grown-up children now has a wife as well. And both of my children have cats. And the cats I also am very thankful for. So they're lovely people and they make me feel very loved. So that's one thing. The second thing is that it's winter now. And even though it's cold, it's really, really beautiful because the leaves are all off the trees. And so you can see far from my window up to the hill behind it. And today there are baby calves on the hill with their mums. So that's a really lovely thing. And the third thing that I'm really grateful for is that I've got a fire with logs on it roaring in front of me. And somebody has given me a pile of logs so that I don't have to go outside in the cold and get any more. So I'm toasty and warm. You were painting a beautiful picture there. (laughs) I really do (laughs) wish I was where you are. Okay, the next one is, what music lifts your spirits at the moment? Oh, I love music. So um, a variety of things, but one of the things that I use to lift my spirits is the soundtrack from a film called The Power of One. And what I love about it is that there is an African choir that sings in it and their voices all are blended together And, you know, when music makes you so happy that it gives you a kind of throb in your chest and your toes start tingling. It's that Mm. kind of music. I love it. Wow. I'm going to check that out now. I haven't heard of that. Okay. My last question is for you. Um, What advice would you give to anyone supporting someone through end of life palliative care? You know, do do you have like a a nugget of gold that you might be able to, to give them today? I think that one of the most useful things that we can do, apart from all of the practical things, you know, we all get very hung up on dinners and cups of tea and medicine. Just stop and sit down and be with them and listen. You don't have to do anything, but be there and listen. If they want to talk, they can talk. If they want to just be quiet, you can be quiet together because sometimes we drown out all those important moments by being busy looking after somebody and forgetting to be with them that's amazing you know this conversation has been incredible i'm so privileged to be able to have spoken to you today and do you know what i've taken a lot away from it and i know my listeners will um and yeah, do you know what? I've been filled with a lot of peace today through talking to you. Your voice, you know, the way that you've told, um, you know, imparted your your wonderful sort of experience has been fantastic. I just want to say a very big thank you. Well, that's that's lovely to hear. And what I really love is that 
when we talk more about dying and what happens and we know more, we do feel more peaceful and less afraid. It's, it's a gift to the world, isn't it? And we've just got to all help each other to get that understanding out there. Thanks, Mark. <laughs>